All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, stirs? Did I say that twice? What's happening? How's it going? Where are we at? Are you good? Let me ask you a question. Let me, and I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe I've discussed this before, but I'm going to put it right to you. Are you having negative thoughts about yourself, other people, or the world? Are you feeling hopelessness about the future? Do you have memory problems, including not remembering important aspects of, of events in your life, like yesterday? Difficulty maintaining close relationships? Are you feeling detached from family and friends? Do you have lack of interest in activities you once enjoyed? Do you have difficulty experiencing positive emotions? Are you feeling emotionally numb? I'm just asking these in a general way. I'm just, you know, I'm just checking in because these are the symptoms of PTSD. Welcome. How are you? You know where you get PTSD? From looking at your phone too much. Okay, I'm exaggerating. But, you know, I mean, seriously, seriously. How many of those feelings do you have? I, it blows me away. I think I talked about this before, but I'm talking about it again because we've got a heavy episode ahead of us, you know? Some, and there's, here there's some other ones. Obviously, you know, t- PTSD is real, but it's my contention that post-pandemic or, or, or whatever part of the pandemic we're in, the trickling pandemic, the ongoing sort of uh, mild version of the pandemic, post and ongoing, you know, Trump problems and very real threats of fascism and climate disaster every day. And you just see this. And, and the fact that you want to ignore it out of powerlessness, that's a symptom. I mean, I'm just taking care of me. You mean you can't handle what's happening? Well, who can? Jesus Christ. Can I just have a nice sandwich? Being easily startled or frightened. Hey! Always being on guard for danger. What? what? What's that? Self-destructive behavior, such as drinking too much or living too fast or you know, masturbating for seven hours to porn. It's not terrible, but it's not a great way to spend a day. Or eating, 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 trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, trouble concentrating, trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating. What? Irritability, angry outbursts, or aggressive behavior. Go fuck yourself, Connie. Overwhelming guilt or shame. I'm sorry I said that. Jesus, I'm sorry. Oh my God. I feel terrible. I don't. I don't. So look. Today on the show, I'm talking to uh, Sam Quinones, okay? He's a journalist, and in 2016, he was on to talk about his book, Dreamland, True Tales of America's Opiate Epidemic. You can actually go back and listen to that talk now. It's available for free on all podcast apps now. Scroll down to episode 757 from November of 2016. So I had him back. He wasn't pitched you know, it, it didn't have to happen, but I read the new book called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. And I had him back on. I just needed to talk to him because there were revelations in that book that reframed the way that I, I looked at some of the cultural problems we're having uh, that have to do with um, the uh, unhoused or if you want to be belligerent and are unwilling to change the homeless. If making the leap to unhoused is too much for you and you're just sort of like, what, what, why, is everything, why does everything have to change? You're not homeless anymore? No, that's not the point. You can change the language, man. There's nothing 
woke about shifting a description in order to sort of be respectful or deal with the perception of the problem in a different way. Oh, again, they're fucking homeless. No. What the fuck is wrong with people? Listen, a few weeks ago, we had Michael Mann on the show. Great talk. Uh, if you haven't heard it, uh, you can check it out anytime you want, right there in the podcast feed, Michael Mann. The episode date is July 18th. We talked a bit about his new novel, Heat 2, and it comes out tomorrow. So just to give you a little reminder about that, here's a clip of me and Michael Mann talking about Heat 2. The novel begins one day after the end of the movie. Okay. And uh, Christian Hurlis is wounded. He's the last survivor. He's half delirious yeah. on drugs. Yeah. Nate's try- Nate John Voigt's trying to get him out. And uh, he, becomes, he becomes aware that Charlene betrayed him mm. and that Neil's dead. Yeah. And he's got to get out of L.A. And then it jumps back to 1988 when uh, Neil's alive, obviously, and the Val Kilmer character and that whole crew are going to burglarize a bank vault at night. Hannah happens to be a cop in a quasi-corrupt Chicago police department chasing a home invader. And so all these stories begin in 88, and then it moves back and moves from there. It takes some things that happen in Mexicali. So it sounds almost like that this was, you, you couldn't do it the same way in a movie. This is a book, but it's also going to be a very large movie. It's going to be a large movie. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is that already underway? Uh, yes. Well, yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, I can't talk about it, but yes. Yeah. Okay, because I was wondering if it was it was in in place of. Uh, no, it's no. it's. I always want. I always wanted to do this book. Yeah. I always wanted to to uh, explore the early life of these guys. Yeah. And then and then also where and to project to find a way to bring the past into the into the present and the present being about two thousand and two, seven years after the events of uh, of of the of Heat the movie. So how do you like are you how do you cast that if you're gonna do a film? Very very large ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta listen to that whole thing. It's fucking awesome. You can get Heat Two tomorrow in stores or whatever online seller you use to get books. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Listen to that little chachi. Wait, what's he doing? No, it's okay. Don't freak out. Come here. Come here, chachi. What's the matter, Jimmy? What's the matter, Timmy? What? What? Uh-huh. What else? Yeah. Are you a Charlie? Yeah? How about Charlie? I like Charlie. You like Charlie? How's Charlie? What do you think? Charlie? Huh? Okay. Go back in the hat. Do you want me to take him away now? Yeah. Okay. I'll be in a second. Okay, I'm sorry. I think I'm going to keep that kitten. Doesn't it sound like I'm going to keep that kitten? I'm in trouble. So strap in. This is a heavy, honest conversation with a journalist who uh, wrote two great books and just it's important information to know what's really going on you know why what causes um the profound addiction to fentanyl and meth what are these new drugs these synthetic drugs how did they piggyback on the on the uh 
opioid crisis and the black tar heroin crisis. What has happened uh, both for horrible, for bad, and also for some uh, uh, sort of uh, kind of um, bits of light? How do you track it all back? How do you make it an exciting narrative so people learn? What it showed me about the current unhoused situation, especially since people make so much fun of the unhoused, you know, just relentlessly bullying. It's the, the, the purest punching down. And I, look, I've done it myself, but I'm aware. I'm aware. But there's information that you will hear about fentanyl, about methamphetamine that's going to make you look at your family differently. It's going to make you look at the culture differently. It's going to make you look at the problem we're up against differently. And it's certainly going to make you look at the desperate people in the streets of your city differently. And it's going to make you wonder how can you help if you're that kind of person? Or it's going to put you further into some sort of PTSD. But, uh, but Sam is a top-notch journalist. It's all in this new book, The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. It's available now wherever you get books. And it comes out in uh, paperback November 1st. This is me talking to Sam Quinones. So, not unlike the last book, Sam, I, uh, I guess I'm, I, I don't know if I'm late to the party, but it's been out for a little while, right? Uh, nine months. That's not much. Takes no. me a while to read things. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. not unlike the last one, I read this and there, there's elements of it that were, you know, mind-blowing on, on a lot of levels, but something specifically that really grabbed me uh, that, that we'll get to. But like bef- before I, I, I try to unfold it, because like I don't always do, you know, conversations like this, which I, I think on some level work as a, as a public service. Mm-hmm. Announcement as some guy who's who's sober a long time, you know, right. where it, right. it, it's interesting, not unlike uh, Dreamland, uh, the uh, the the true tales of America's opiate epidemic. You land, you know, in a place that is relatively hopeful, you know, yeah. somewhat I wouldn't say optimistic, but but a, a call to action uh, that requires a community and patience and uh, empathy. Sure. You know, and, and, and I think what's interesting about both of these books is that. You don't it, like I, I had finished it this morning, and I thought like, well, I better finish it before it comes in. It's not like there's a spoiler. It's not like you're going to get here and I'm going to be like, does everything work out at the end? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> but I guess in approaching this one, I have to assume that uh, the least of us true tales of America and hope in the time of fentanyl and meth was this after you finished Dreamland. Yeah, you must you must have seen this happening already. Well, what happened was with Dreamland. Yeah. Something happened that I could never have predicted. In fact, by even by the last time we spoke, it yeah. really was not happening as much as it later did. And that this, was this what the the fentanyl thing. The, the awareness began to grow of this opioid epidemic. Right, and I don't. It was not there when I wrote it. I know, I know. When I wrote Dreamland, there was it was like an echo chamber. No one was talking about this, you know. And um, I began to get after the Dreamland comes out. I began to get all these invitations come speak. Yeah, it was unbelievable. The numbers, and, and every year was more. And so, 2016, it was like the last time we spoke was like, yeah, some. And then 2017 and 18 and 19, and then with COVID, it all kind of went away. But the what happened was, I began to see 
this, the meth and the fentanyl developing in real time as I was traveling. Everywhere I would go, they would go, we don't even, some places they, remember they started saying, we don't really even have any heroin anymore. It's all fentanyl. Nobody's got heroin for sale. Well, so when you go to speak, like, in, 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 okay, so, you know, you'd written a few books before Dreamland. Now, Dreamland yeah. obviously, you know, gave names and a face and, and a history and a structure right. to to our drug problem that, that I mean, deepened it. I, I imagine for anybody who read the book and for families, and you know, the, that there was a broader place to put yes. the blame and, and also a systemic. And a bigger story. They, they kind right. of, the Dreamland kind of tied all these threads right. uh, together. Now, I think. when you get asked to speak, I mean, as a journalist, you know, what are you feeling? Do you feel like you're some sort of emissary? Yeah, so a few things. It depends who. Yes, right. That's a kind of sure. That's a big part of it. I also felt as time went on, I didn't realize it when I first started doing it. I began meeting people in every speech I gave, and this would could be conferences, professional conferences, judges, uh-huh. public health, whatever, uh-huh. addiction counselors, but also a lot of small towns. I was hugging people like almost every speech because the truth is people come up with to me what almost every speech two or three at at, at every speech would be like yeah my my brother died yeah my dad died my kids died yeah. and um you, you try to say something that means something to people who yeah. are in that kind of grief um yeah. and the truth is after a while i, I mean I, I would say things to them but basically i just hug them hmm. because as time went on, I began to realize this was grief that was shared all across the country, and I needed to have some response. I realized that this wasn't coming upon me to have some response, and I began to understand that, you know, I would hold her hand. Sometimes you just got to be there, stand there. Yes, right. Yeah, and-, and Witness. Mm-hmm, exactly, precisely. And I began to think, and also I began to tell stories that I thought made them understand or allowed them to understand- they weren't alone. That this was uh, too often. This problem festered and spread because people believed they were just there wasn't anybody in a ten mile radius with uh, the of me that has this problem. My kid, my my husband, my wife, whatever, yeah. uh, is addicted to this crap. And, and shame, uh, right? And and also yeah, the, the shame and the the nobody wanted to talk about. It. The reason it was it was so. Um, had spread so completely, in my opinion, was that the people who could best tell the stories about it, where the families were ashamed, were embarrassed. Though you mean the the the, the to, to tell the stories of personal uh, crisis? If you're a, I mean, as a journalist and you have this kind of thing, the, the the most personal stories are the most impactful. And if you don't have those people, yeah, you you're missing a gaping. There's a big gaping hole, and and as a result, politicians really weren't paying attention to it. Um, uh, uh, the media was covering it, kind of scattershot. Not re- some places were doing a good this job. This was the others. opioids. This was the opioid epidemic. But then along the way, after Dreamland comes out, I began to do these these speeches, and I began to see as I traveled the country. I did, I did in four and a half years. I did two hundred sixty five speeches. Right. I mean, it was just insane. And you're going to these places that were profoundly affected, which is almost everywhere, uh, by by the opioid epidemic, and, yeah. and people wanted, you know, at least some window, some hope, some explanation, some exactly. Some... And I think the more you tell a story, the stories are, in my opinion, the best way of, of first of all, breaking down the shame, the, and the human stigma. stories, putting yes. the human face on on the crisis, and how they fit, 
how their boy or how their their wife or whatever fits into this larger thing. So, so they that's can kind of you have some it? sense to it. Yeah. You know so I mean? that's how you presented it when you. I think so. Yeah, and it became a very very cathartic thing for me. Every time I spoke, it did not get old. I gave I gave similar speeches sure. frequently. Sure. Um, and it was very very powerful. I'm, I'm saying that. Not out of uh, uh, immodesty, but I mean, most of the time I was getting standing ovations. It was like a very powerful thing. And then afterwards, I would sign books and meet people, and people would come up, you right. know, hugging. It's, a, it's, like, it's service. In yeah, a way. yeah. It was, it, it was, it, it was that. And I began to realize that the awareness now was spreading across the country. That people were now aware that this was. Uh, a national problem. They were not all alone. It was not every, you know, one person right. every 10, 10 right. miles. So, you know. so, like, not unlike Dreamland, where, y- you know, you kind of followed a lead that, yes. that opened up this entire uh, world to you, that, yes. which was, uh, you know, black tar heroin arrests in Appalachia, right? Yeah, right. And so now you're out on the road. And, and now I have to assume that on some level, you know, in, in in getting into the new book, you have the the this sort of context. You have the infrastructure yes, of this book, right. you, and you also know, connections that I didn't have before. Sure. And but you have a specific approach to to how you're going to tell these stories because yeah. you not only the personal stories go all the way up the ladder, the corporate ladder, the criminal you know criminal yeah. ladder, drug sure. dealers, you know, whatever. But but uh, but so so what what sparks it? I mean, you're just at hearing first, about fentanyl? at first what I, what what I really wanted to do was and this was initially like 2000 my publisher was saying you got to do another book and i was like okay okay i'll figure try to figure out what it is as time went on initially what i really wanted to do was write the half of the book that talks about the stories of community repair that's a recovery like bird in in muncie indiana yeah um and that's in this book and this book and, right. yeah and so i began to do these stories of people involved in community repair not necessarily helping addicts but just finding ways of bringing people together sustaining a community that was in stress in some way and i began to develop these stories and then along the way i began to realize holy shit fentanyl is taken over Everything and that was first in the Midwest, and, and then you, it goes east and west after that. It goes later. You to, were uh, hyper uh, attuned <clears throat> to the deaths. Yes, but also people would like I would meet it. You know, um, uh, narcotics agents and and people who were guys in you, ER docs. And these are guys like. you knew from the first book. No, it would, well sometimes, but mostly it would be people I would just meet on the way. Really, and I'd, I'd, I'd I'd sit them down for like sometimes it'd be just as short as five minutes. What's going on in were your you recording? Area? Um, not initially. Oh, okay. It was more like, I'm just trying to understand what's going okay. on. And I began to realize that the fentanyl story, which began very small and I thought was going to be inconsequential, turns out to be the the story and it begins to crowd out heroin. When did you think it was small and inconsequential? Uh, 2000, when I was writing Dreamland, I thought, okay, pr- you heard part of it was it. my brain was... But you heard about fentanyl. Then. Oh, I had heard about it, yeah. sure, yeah. But I just thought, okay, I don't have any more room in my little brain or in my book to put in fentanyl. Right. So... I'm going to leave that for another time if I have to cover it at all. And yeah. then as I hit the road and as I began to speak more often, I began to see, oh, shit, man, this is really taking over 
everything and it's crowding so there's no more heroin in these areas no after a while it takes about a year and pretty soon it's just all fentanyl. But what, so what did that tell you did, did that tell you that like somehow the 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 people that were involved in the franchising of heroin had to be involved no no the opposite that that there was now such an enormous market that had gone you, oh, okay. way beyond the 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 small time groups that i was writing about in dreamland and now it was like a global market so, almost. So so your question at that point was, where the fuck is this coming from? Yeah, and at first the answer was in fr- f- in uh, in small packages from Chinese chemical companies. That, that people could get like on the black net. You, on, yeah, and on the dark web dark and all web, that yeah. stuff. Sorry, yeah, whatever you call yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Well, and and, called, and then they and they would get it. Yeah. And it would come to dealers like low low. These guys were viewing fentanyl as their lottery ticket. Oh my god! I you know I, I get I get like a quarter pound of of a quarter pound of of, of uh, fentanyl. I make millions. You know that's that's so what these, they were thinking. So so it was decentralized completely. Completely in, in Dreamland, it was decentralized, but still active. Kind of like there were people in control in Mexico. There was an organic foundation. Yeah. It was had to be grown and then it had to be distributed and there was a, a, a business right. model in place. So yeah. what's interesting about the fentanyl thing is like any idiot could get a brick of fentanyl with not knowing what they had, you know, chop it like not it's Not know coke. how to mix it. Right, and, and cut it like it's coke and kill people. Yes, that's and that's what began to happen because the, 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 uh, this was a lottery ticket. Yes. The problem was for a lot of these guys on the street, that lottery ticket was connected to the idea that they now had to mix it. The first time in the history of drug use in America where you have widespread drug that you, but you can't just sell it. You got to mix it. It's first. way too pure. Usually, it's, yeah, and yeah. it's it's a few little grains of salt worth of fentanyl will get you high. A couple more will kill you. But you can't. Either way, you can't sell that stuff. Yeah. You got to sell. You can't sell a few grains. So you have to mix it. And that's where you began to see the magic bullet blender being used in these idiots like and you, basements. And you go through very, you know, deli- you, you spend time in the book, yeah. you know, with, you know, proper uh, uh, chemical breakdown and, and also <laughs> proper ways to, yeah. to sort of what it would take to, to mix this properly. And they, these folks on the street don't have a clue. And that's no. why, why you began to see, particularly in the first states that were affected, which were all the opioid states, like the, the, the West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, places like that, you began to see clusters of overdoses, like 70 in a weekend in, in I think, deaths. Cincinnati. Deaths. Well, a lot of them were deaths, but then there's also a lot of people revived because there's a lot of Narcan, the, 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 okay, the opioid yeah. o, uh, uh, antidote, overdose antidote. And so what you begin to see is these guys um, mixing it really, really badly because they don't know what they're doing, nor do they probably care. Yeah. And and when the, the, the narcs would bust their, their houses, they'd find... Five six magic bullet blenders, all cruddy and dusty, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But 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 that was because you had guys at the lowest end thinking they'd won the lottery, mixing this stuff in this way that they'd heard was the best way. And I think the reason they they thought it was a, a great way to do it is because I think earlier on heroin had kind of been mixed that way too. Coke uh, to some uh, maybe maybe. Um, Some kind but, of grinder. But mostly, I think it had to do with the fact that it had that bubble. The magic yeah. bullet is a plastic bubble, you yeah. know? And so the idea was, no, you don't have to breathe the fumes, you okay. know, because it's in a little... Of course, the, the problem is the magic bullet blender doesn't have... Is is not the way you mix powder. It's it's for liquids. It's for smoothies. And, and also, and, it's like not that <laughs> small. You know, you're dealing yeah. with something highly lethal. 
And it and it takes so little. It's so little to when kill people. When I was people. reading that stuff, right. it was just horrifying. Look, I've been sober. It's going to be uh, I don't know twenty three years, right? It, yeah. Next uh, next month, and uh, so I've I, this is all new to me. Yeah. But it just hearing, just knowing that kids are out there, and this stuff is in everything now. They put See, it. This in is coke, what happened. They put they, it in the right. speed. They put it in everything. Yeah. And and there, it, one one line, you're dead, man. Yeah, and that's so we've reached. Like in our lifetimes, um, the uh, the emergence of the era of recreational drug use and the end now of risk free recreation. Like so, like somebody just offers you a line at the, at a party. Yeah, and you can't take it. You better test it. You better you better test it, and and you better test the whole line because this part, if it doesn't have fentanyl, the next the next half of the line might have fentanyl. So so and 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 the pills now. The the, the other what what began to happen with fentanyl is that. That the Mexicans finally figured out how to make it. They had a, a, a few couple chapters on the book. This one underground chemist kind of introduces a similar. Well, I love drug that. Guy. So that whole part of it is like you know this the the way you kind of build things in this book. How when you're set out to construct a book because I, it was the same in, in Dreamland mm-hmm. where you're integrating. You know, you know things that that will um, give context, uh, things that will show the <laughs> the hierarchy of things, but also things like I mean, you spend a lot of time, you know, talking about brain chemistry. Yes, and, right. and it, was this something from like w- when you finished Dreamland and had time to reflect on it? Were there things in this book where you're like, I got to explain that now? Yeah, yes, and it should have been in Dreamland. I just didn't have my brain is very limited, and I didn't have space to put in the neurochemistry and the 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 the, uh, the neuroscience of it all. And I thought, and, but it's even advanced since then, though. Yes, seems. sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But to me, you know, the beauty, the great joy that I get uh, from journalism. Is that I get to not write about stuff I know about, right? But rather find out about stuff I don't know anything right. about. Right. So you're excited about it. Oh hell yeah! And, yeah. I, and I was very lucky in some of these cases. For example, with the neuroscience, to be able to talk to some brilliant, brilliant. And there's it, we are in the golden age in neuroscience research right now. They're, they're learning so much. So what was the thing? The one thing out of all that that you were like, holy shit, this is a key. Um, oh man, I mean, they're they're all. Th- I, I guess the the most amazing thing, the thing that I would repeat to my wife <laughs> yeah. was, um, you know, they had that that one experiment on rats uh-huh. uh, where they would, you know, naloxone is a drug that you give to opioid uh, people who are an over- opioid over who are an overdose yeah. to revive them, and they immediately, frequently, they go into withdrawals when you revive them because they're all of a sudden they have had all their dope deprived. Oh, interesting. They're taken away from their brain chemistry, oh, their wow. brain receptors, yeah. and they're mad because all of a sudden they're you yeah. know they're they're frustrated or whatever. Well, they had this the Princeton uh, neuroscience lab did this experiment where it addicted, it got dependent uh, on sugar, a whole cage of rats. Yeah. And so it it um, put all these rats it needed sugar. They would hit the sugar water constantly. They would right. never touch the non-sugar right. water at all. You know, bam, bam, bam. And then they gave the rats naloxone. Yeah, like you would to a heroin overdose or a For fentanyl sure. overdose. And all of a sudden, these rats start displaying symptoms of withdrawals that the neuroscientists associate with in a rat with withdrawals. A lot of shaking, a lot of grooming and yeah. fidgeting and all that kind of stuff. And see, that was early on made me think like, damn, 
so we have all these things that are hitting our brains, not just heroin, right? Sugar, all this stuff, all these. Your phone, the phone could go on and on about that too, it, and it's all hitting our brains in the same way. Heroin is maybe not as powerfully and with such intensity, and certainly not with the intensity of fentanyl, but nevertheless, it's hitting the same receptors. The it's creating that that kind of re, um, response in us to crave, and that's why is it the dopamine receptors? Yes, exactly. Yeah. The the opioid receptors that are that are then generated dopamine and you want oh uh, that's good keep doing that keep and, doing that keep yeah, doing that right and you explain in the book too that that the serotonin is the balance serotonin is kind of satisfaction mm. and and dopamine is i want more so you have normally in in our bodies we have a kind of a t- a little bit of maybe a tug of war of these two chemicals in our brains uh, a, 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 a healthy life is when serotonin and dopamine are more or less balanced right an addicted life is when the dopamine is really dominant, and and, has, and and right, and that could be you know you know by virtue of addiction or, or self medicating a, a pre existing problem, but you don't yeah, find that out right. if you're strung out on dope. But so those th- experiments, because I, I thought that was interesting and, and and kind of run throughout the book, is that you know that that once that was sort of discovered, you realize that the entirety of of our late stage capitalistic culture is fueled primarily on keeping people in this fucking dopamine state <clears throat> of like hitting those receptors constantly we to have create now, need. We have I'm 63. So okay. I when I was a, I was in my high school, I was in the 70s. Um you know, we had nothing like this in the 80s even. We had nothing like this where you have all these, not just illegal products, uh-huh. but now many, many legal products that very smart, very moneyed corporations. Right, you talk about like the, the sugar construction of snacks. Right, exactly. Like, they're right. completely designed. Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets are, <laughs> are uh, uh, were invented in a lab, Cornell University, by the way. Not, it's not like yeah. a, a right. recipe that some, yeah. whole, some lady comes yeah. up with or someplace on those farm or somewhere. It's it, and so it, they, they are sixty percent uh, fat and salt, which our brains evolved for millennium, you know, yeah. eons to crave because we got very little of it. Right, and then you combine that with the dip that's got sugar in it. Yeah. right. So yeah. you dip. All, all, you, that's the trifecta. That's sugar, <laughs> fat, and salt yeah. all in one thing. And yeah. then, but the chicken nugget I often use. It's like it's very much like crack. Yeah, right. Okay. Sure. Well, what, what is crack? Yeah. Well, with Cocaine, coca leaf, you chew the coca leaf yeah. and it gets you mildly buzzed. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now you, you process it, you strip away all those fibers that slow the absorption in the brain and you come up with the cocaine. Yeah. And all of a sudden, bam, you're hit. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And then <clears throat> they figured out hey, if you cook cocaine or bake cocaine in a microwave with baking soda and water it gets hard you could smoke it and then boom it gets yeah so yeah. it's really stripping away all those things that prevent the quick absorption into your brain well, you know, of the cocaine and that's what chicken nuggets are chicken nuggets are kind of like we're stripping away a lot of the nutrition all the stuff that that that, yeah. that, that stops that and it's obviously it's not exactly like crack the, the effect is very different but the idea is you strip away the house. nutrition you strip away the yeah. stuff that slows things down and it's and sugar's right. same way. There's You're a lot probably of not like, going to lose your house uh, strung out on no, nuggets. No, no, strung out on chicken nuggets, it's, 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 it's unlikely. But, 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 but I think you what you're I mean? talking about, and, 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 and I think you hint at it throughout the books, it, it, throughout the book, if not you know, spe- explicitly, but sort of subtly, is that almost all of our culture is operating at this uh, frequency. That's where I was going. We have, we have transformed in the last, I would say, last 20, certainly last 30 years yeah. into mass marketing, of highly addictive legal 
shit. So phones. But even discourse, food. dude, even semantics, even on the phone. I mean, no, you spend 10 yeah. minutes on your phone in the morning. You blow your brains out, dude. Yeah. You blow right. your fucking brains out on clickbait, on TikTok, on Instagram. It's just this. My wife ball. had a very interesting thing to say about this. Uh, uh, she's my best editor. Yeah. Um, and, and she said, you know, it used to be that we had to f- had to work hard to develop an opinion. You have to read people who knew more than you uh-huh. about topic X. Uh-huh. And many people, you have to really work hard. Sure. Now, sure. It, opinions are like fast food. We're getting f- force-fed them on Twitter, on yeah, Instagram. Whatever feels good. Memes. Yeah, whatever you know, feels good. Exactly, and you're getting it for, and, you, and pretty soon you don't have to work anymore. Right, right. You there, just adopt it. Well, yeah, but you should still work. But there was an interest, I think there was a sentence in there uh, that I may have underlined towards the end about about the nature of of, of that specifically because you bring up you know QAnon and tribalism you bring right. up you know the, oh, the idea that uh, that that social uh, media yeah. was supposed to create this great community right. but instead it created remember the, uh, the Egypt Spring and all that it yeah. was supposed to be this 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 community forum through right 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 people. here remember when social media was going to be great technological connective tissue bringing people together inaugurating a new era of understanding instead it midwifed an era of virulent tribalism right. the opioid epidemic began with legal drugs irresponsibly marketed and prescribed yeah yes but yes yeah, so it's like this is because I've been talking about on stage a little bit, but not with that kind of clarity, is that you know we're now learning just how soft the brain is and how much you need to be yeah. vigilant about what you let in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And and how much, frankly, it seems to me one of the things. Um, uh, I, I had a heart attack five years ago, and uh, and since I've been um, doing a lot more exercise and that kind of thing, and and how much. Uh, and I think for addiction recovery, this is extraordinarily important as well. How much nutrition mm. and exercise. They are the best medicine, sure. rather more than pills, more than sure, whatever yeah. else. You right. Know. Well, that you talk about that towards the end of the book too, about how you you know people have grown to rely on what what do I got to take to fix this? And yeah, I yeah, think yeah. that's kind of the the problem that grew up since the '60s, basically. Sure. Well, you know, that's and, I think that's the birth of big pharma, really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also then Big Pharma understands that, understands that we prize convenience, understands our lives are sedentary and 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 and, and very fast moving, and and they begin to market to that you know right uh, so uh-huh. alongside of of you know talking about the neuroscience you're talking about the history of synthetic painkillers yeah right and obviously if you want to talk you know if you want to, if people who are listening want to really get into the opioids you can read the other book but you put enough of it in here to get the hang of it yeah but that you know the nature of some of those you know that was even higher science than than the fentanyl and everything else yeah. and that yeah. once these recipes you know, I mean, who's the guy you track it to? That one guy who invented fentanyl, and they Paul, started to Paul Johnson, right? They started right. to fuck with the molecules just to see what else they yeah. could come up with. And there's a lot of ways to synthesize this powerful painkiller, or ones like it. Ones like it, yeah. If, Paul Jansen is an interesting guy because I mean, he's been dead a good, good number of years now, but I mean, he was really a brilliant, brilliant scientist, one of the great scientists of the 20th century. And fentanyl, he invented understanding what it would do completely understanding that yeah. it would hit the brain much quicker yeah it would be great for anesthesia and oh. it brings you in because it brings you in and out very quickly so yeah. before that it was morphine they'd always have to take you down to death right and it's very dangerous and and fentanyl's in and out and and 
and frankly, most of the people listening to this, many of the people listening yeah. to this will have had fentanyl in, in an operation. It's a magnificent drug. It revolutionized surgery. And in the hands of an anesthesiologist and a surgeon, it is fantastic. And they gave it to me when I was having my heart attack surgery. Um, and but, uh, uh, but that was the idea, that it takes you in and out, very quick entry through the brain to the yeah. brain. And then very easy to get it out of there as uh, as well with naloxone. And so it it really transformed surgery. The problem is, of course, it's extraordinarily potent. That's part of its yeah value as a as a real drug in the, in a surgical setting. Yeah, and uh, in the hands of the wrong people, you know. So they begin to figure out that uh, you know you get if early on and for for several decades in fentanyl's life, you get these really kind of rogue chemists off and one-off types, you know? Yeah. Like he made a, a you know, a, a three pounds of, of fentanyl. Yeah. And people start dying and yeah. and then they disappear. You never knew who really so did So these it. guys were sort of challenging themselves to see if they could do it. Yeah, and some of them were like kind of anti-government types. Okay. And, you know, and then, but the big thing that really happened was in 2006 when one underground amateur, well, one underground chemist, yeah. uh, Ricardo Valdez Torres, talk, talk about him in the book, it, um, is hired by the Sinaloa drug cartel. Um, uh, he's from Mexico, but he's lived most of his life in, in San Diego and learned how to cook it there and cook fentanyl. And they, but they hire him to cook, ephed- make ephedrine because ephedrine is one of the is the precursor to one of the most important ways of making methamphetamine. The and old they, style, old school. Yeah, math. yeah, right. And they are thinking that we we're going to run out of ephedrine if we don't watch it. Government's yeah. cracking down. Oh, because they were getting it from China. They were getting it from the 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 all variety India, of places, wherever, but the, yeah. but they was being curtailed by the Mexican government, and because, so they get, they hired this guy because of the speed. Yeah, they want to yeah. make they want to make meth. Exactly right, and they and 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 they say we want you to make meth, but he, like, very ballsy, says um t- says to himself, yeah, okay, they don't know what they're talking about. I'm going to make fentanyl because that's what I really want to yeah. make. And they get mad, but he t- sits them down and says, look, man, this you don't know what you're talking about. This is the most powerful, profitable drug you will ever see. This will take a 50 to one cut. And they don't believe that because on the street, you don't cut anything 50 times sure. and have it worth selling. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But sure enough, you could do it with the shit that he's he's selling. They begin, so there's wiretaps of, of him, of, of these guys selling it up in Chicago and up in Detroit. Oh my, and calling back down to Mexico. Oh my God, it's working. You know, yeah. people love it. Like that kind of stuff. And, and he, but that's the first time you see mass death. Yeah, associated with associated with seven two thousand six and seven right yeah. in there right, exactly. He's busted in two thousand and six, but he had just sold ten kilos into the market, and so that has to spends many months killing people. And they, it really heads to you know it's like Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, yeah. Philadelphia, Cleveland, places like that. Is this where it starts to replace <clears throat> the opioids? No, it's where the but it is where the Sinaloa drug cartel the light goes on. Yeah. That there is now a synthetic form of heroin. We don't have to wait for. We poppies. don't have to grow poppies and hire farmers yeah. to make yeah. it for us. You know, we could just make it in a lab. Oh my God! You know, and then he's arrested. He spends another fifteen years in, in prison and stuff like that. He's out of out of. He's not accessible to them. But meanwhile, the the Chinese begin to figure this out and figure out that hey, there's all these opioid addicts in America, but also elsewhere in the world. They begin to sell it, and so you begin to see 
these two forces, the Mexicans and the Chinese chemical company, the Mexican cartel groups and the Chinese chemical companies kind of separately, but then more like connected. And, and, and alongside of this, the methamphetamine business is also shifting? Well, the meth, the meth business out of Mexico, yes, right, exactly. Except for the meth business was well-known and well-practiced down in Mexico. They had industrialized the methamphetamine um, made with this chemical with known ephedrine. as ephedrine, yeah. which you find in pseudofed sure. pills and all that stuff. Yeah. They knew how to make that. Very, very easy to make meth with that. Yeah. But then the Mexican government, as I said, begins to crack down. A- out of pressure, global pressure, or United yes. States pressure, and there's probably. some political c- considerations yeah. internally and all that kind of, but what ends up happening is they really reduce significantly the importations of ephedrine. Yeah. So the traffickers have been 20 years doing this, or well, yeah, about 20 years doing it by then, and they're like, all of a sudden, we don't have our main chemical. What do we do? Right. Yeah. And so they shift to this other form of making methamphetamine that is old but new the to them P, the p2p method p2p well, stuff. old how was that the original way the bikers made it yes and, and you've got this poster of gimme shelter yeah. uh the rolling stones yeah. concert at altamont yeah. which i've seen a couple of times yeah and it's a big rolling stones fan yeah um that is really at that at that concert is really where you see the first um expression in me- american culture of p2p methamphetamine on no those kidding. bikers yeah those bikers you watch you remember they're yeah. going through with their harleys and and beating up people because they're touching their bikes in the middle yeah. of a crowd of hundred thousand or whatever and up front you know it's it's bedlam it's i remember watching that movie when i was in high school and yeah. then much many years later and what i didn't understand what i now understand was this was the first time you really saw in public on film and all that P2P method at, See, at See, this was the thing I, I was talking about at the beginning that, that really sort of made me feel like we needed to talk about it specifically in relation to, you know, the, cur- the current homeless situation is that, you know, because yeah. I'm a guy, you know, okay, COVID happened and the economy took a hit, but I'm driving around. And you see these these <laughs> this homeless situation, the tents and the shanty yeah. towns and whatever, and you see the 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 weird hoarding of artifacts. But my brain still bends around this sort of eighty sense of like, well, they, these were you know when Reagan you know shut down, the, you know, put all the mentally ill on the streets. <laughs> You know, the, the, you had this problem of 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 these poor, uh, you know, tragic people right. that couldn't get help, and it was it mm-hmm. was terrible. And and so my my brain and mindset, not just it was around class and around mental illness, but what your book you know posits, and I and I think you support it uh, well, is that you know this new way of making meth is creating new homeless people and also yeah. creating you know profound mental illness that happens yeah. very quickly. And that's, specific- that was the, see, the, the initially my story was the P2P meth allows them to make methamphetamine in many different ways. You can get to, you can make P2P, it's known as phenyl 2 propanone as the precursor chemical. Yeah. You can make it many different ways. So if the government cracks down on these three chemicals, you yeah. need to make P2P. You shift over here to these other chemicals. What's the, what are the ones that you have to have? Well, they're, they sh- no, there's no... They, you, really? can, you can make it with many different combinations, like okay. 15 or 20, maybe even more no than, kidding. Than, than, than that. And they're all legal. They're all widely available chemicals used in a variety of industries. They're all toxic. And so it makes it very difficult for the government to crack down as they did on ephedrine. And so now if you if you if they crack down on one thing, you make it make it another way. And here's the crucial thing. Yeah. The trafficking world by now controls the major shipping ports on the western 
side of Mexico, Pacific coast of Mexico. What year so is this? Th- this would be two thousand. By the two, by the nineties, really, they control a, a lot of that stuff. Yeah. But by the two thousands, for sure, yeah, they've got they and and now without a doubt, and so they're getting they get access to the entire world's chemical market, so they can yeah. bring in this stuff in container loads. That's so you're how, saying that now now Mexico can make tons. Oh yeah, I was on a conversation. I was just uh, reminded of this uh, earlier today. I was, I've, I've had a number of conversations with a man who is a uh, who's used to um, uh, uh, manage kind of a low level, yeah. mid level manager of a of a meth operation for the Sinaloa drug cartel in in down in Mexico. He's still down. He's still in Mexico. Speaks perfect English. Grew up here. Yeah. Grew up in uh, you know in Artesia someplace. Yeah. And um, and he said his operation alone. This is just his group of workers and stuff uh, was making five tons a month of, of and, oh and, you're, and, and, tra- and 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 doing the um and uh, uh p2p uh, la- yeah yeah and laundering 15 to 20 million a month a do- a dollars a month so initially that was my story initially i was like we have reached a period where they have been able to cover the entire country not just cover the entire united states but at the same time drop the price from that to the point where it's like 80 by 80 percent roughly so, so and, and and what what evolves in the book is that didn't matter whatever drug you were on why not do this one yes and it begins to take over so you begin to see people who are on opioids now switch to meth then along the way as i'm about to finish the book i have this conversation with this guy who i just saw earlier today as a matter of fact yeah eric barrera wonderful fellow yeah former meth user former marine who tells and I, I meet him by chance and we yeah. and he's now a homeless outreach worker and he's telling me in 2009 he said 2009 immediately my brain goes yeah because 2008 is when the Mexican government cracked down on ephedrine 2009 is when this shift begins yeah. towards this other form of making methamphetamine he tells me I've been using it for eight years, and I was—it was like a euphoric drug. I was, as he said, the phrase always sticks in my mind. I was everybody's best friend. I was yakking away on the old speed. Yeah, exactly. And all of a sudden, I take it and I turn into this raging, paranoid maniac, stabbing the walls because my girlfriend's got a man hidden in the wall or in the mattress, all that shit. And he says it. It for the next several years, when I was strung out on the stuff, I was never. I never felt the euphoria again. I was always kind of consumed with pornography. Very, I'm, I'm p- p- consumed with alone with my pornography. Consumed with paranoia. Yeah. All this kind of stuff. Yeah. And this hit me right then. I'm like, holy shit. Now, if this supply, this form of making methamphetamine, yeah. as I'm sure it is, is now coast to coast, right? then maybe, and these symptoms are what this guy, maybe these symptoms are also coast to coast. Right. And what ended up, this was during the middle of the, the first pandemic year, like to 2020, yeah. summer 2020. Yeah. So I'm sitting there at a Pasadena pizzeria with this guy, and he's explaining to me this major story that I had never considered. Um, and... Um, and I begin to call. So I begin to say, I've got to check this somehow. So I begin to call all these people, ER folks, treatment folks, any recovering meth users yeah. I can find, not too many of them, frankly. And as I begin, I call all over the country, Southern Indiana, Portland, Albuquerque, Vegas, uh, uh, Vegas, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Skid Row, uh, yeah. numerous police people down there. Yeah. Um, uh, West Virginia, Virginia, et cetera, et cetera. I just call and call and call. And at every place yeah. I'm calling, they're telling me exactly the same story. 2009. Yeah. It was remarkable. I was like, holy 
She, I was walking around. In fact, one of the first guys I called was a, was a meth researcher I've known for a long time at the University of West Virginia. Now, he used to be out here in L- UCLA yeah. doing meth experiments. And, he, and uh, I know he's got this long history of invest- researching meth and all yeah. that. And he said, man, I had never thought of it that way, but I bet you that's why. Because exactly what you're saying, well, exactly, here's what we're seeing. That I got here in 2016, this meth arrived in 2017 in West Virginia, hadn't been there before. And he says, almost immediately, you find people descending into very scary symptoms of, of schizophrenia, m- mental illness, paranoia, and then very quickly, homelessness, and then encampments and all that kind of stuff, too. And so I, once he told me that, I, I'd had Eric's story out here in Pasadena, and then this guy in West Virginia telling me the exact same story, exactly when this thing starts showing up in large, large quantities, you begin to see this. And since then... I think, I mean, I was extraordinarily uh, convinced of, of from my reporting yeah. of this story when I published the book. And since the book, I've done, people have come out of the woodwork, you know. I just spoke with a, a very high up official and county substance abuse official. And yeah. he was telling, it's it's clear that the meth is, is very different and it's creating all these issues. Quickly. And it's that's the thing. It's not like you take three months to develop this stuff. Uh, it's It's more like hours. Sometimes a few days, wow. so you know, boom, so, and, and all of a sudden everybody is a, a threat. Every black car that passes is an FBI agent after you, and and every every fire fire alarm uh, attached to in your apartment is the CIA bugging your, you know, that kind of thing. It's wild paranoia, and so, very so, intense. So the what the thing that I think that blew my mind is that there, you know once the shift once it became so cheap and, and the market was so glutted that you know any idiot could sell a pound and you could yeah, get it for a nickel right, yeah. so so all that was on the streets you know yeah. after the tar went away and after the opioid thing tapped out was fentanyl and this meth yeah. So, so ultimately, both synthetics. Yeah, both no synthetic. plant involved. So, yeah. So, there's no end to the supply. Right. Exactly. Right. A- and it's cheap. And it's and it's impu- made with impunity down in Mexico. Very important to understand that that the, the traffickers face no scrutiny from almost no scrutiny from law enforcement. So, so the game of anybody who gets involved in this world who gets strung out on you know even for a minute that I think the move from of all drug addiction. To these two primary substances, yeah. you know, that are usually done in tandem with each other or as a reaction to each other, right? That, you know, that that uh, that people were doing the meth because they didn't want to OD on fentanyl. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, the fentanyl people were probably doing the 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 uh, the meth to kind of get a speedball thing going. Or, or you use the meth because you're afraid of fentanyl or you use the meth because you're now homeless and this meth does an exceptionally fine job of divorcing you from reality. And so you're really not aware or it keeps you up all, a lot too so well, even explains so, the hoarding like you know yes, when you see these right, yeah, encampments yeah. with just you know mountains of garbage and uh, bicycle that, parts everywhere right yeah every, every every this is a remarkable thing but meth this meth in particular not the ephedrine meth so much but this meth is really connected to um an obs- obsessive behavior and one of the obsessions that people seem to have i first heard about this in west virginia not in la but um, uh, is is obsession with bicycles and bicycle parts and taking apart a bicycle, stealing bicycles right around late at night because you're up all night, you're up for days, you know. And then and then I begin driving around L.A. and I begin to realize, holy shit, I see bicycle parts, big bicycle, what they call bicycle stores, like in Skid Row and stuff yeah. like that. Bicycles are are huge. And and what's amazing to me too, Mark, is, is this. I think I've been doing this a long time. Used to be. 
that with drugs you had regional stories. Uh, uh, people would use this this drug here and 500 miles away, they wouldn't even know what that drug was. It was a real um, heterogeneous kind of drug uh, um, mosaic all yeah. across the right. country. Sure. Right now what you're finding, this is a stunning development, it, yeah. it feels to me, is that the stories are all the same. You could talk to people in Reno, talk to people in southern Indiana, the story's going to be almost exactly the same. Fentanyl, meth, people dying of fentanyl, people out of their mind on 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 meth, living in encampments, and also both these drugs, you, you don't see you don't see the effect of it so much in California and Los Angeles, but you do in the Midwest, and both these drugs do an exceptionally fine job of convincing you that this is the only place you should be, and so tent won't leave tent encampments even when the w- weather drops to like lethal temperatures, people freeze to death. Rather than rather than leave, and that's just an ex, uh, an expression of the remarkable, powerful kind of brainwashing. Well, isn't that interesting though that this is happening with information as well? Yes. See, that's the thing. You've got all these, all this stuff that's that's out there now that is taking over. You know, our 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 unprepared brain chemistry for a lot of people. Anyway, it seems to me, and and yeah, you've got and you've got a lot of people who are very smart. In corporations, a lot of money, a lot of research capability, constantly Pushing. tinkering. Yeah, constantly tinkering with how do we make this a little bit better? And then, of course, the marketing. Americans are nothing if not the greatest marketers in the, in the history of the planet. We know how to market that shit. Um, you know why? Why do why do a fast food places never change their logos? Because those logos are. Um, uh, are triggers. Yeah. They're just as much a trigger as chopping up a line of cocaine and we hear that chop, 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 all of a sudden you right. want to use it. Well, I mean, the yeah, and also I think the, the sort of idea of impunity that you're very, you know, sort of throughout this book, you know, because I think it happened after you wrote the last book was the 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 sort of uh, comeuppance for yeah. the Sackler family, yeah, or, or another or for, thing, right, uh, or for Purdue uh, Pharmaceuticals, right. But but ultimately, you know, you characterize this family as as you know you treating it as a PR problem and not yeah. you know and not admitting to any responsibility for what they did, yeah. And ultimately, you know, that corporation, the corporate structure of that, and how they sold pharmaceuticals, and you were clear uh, later in the book to to say they weren't the only ones. Actually, there were others. Oh no, no, there yeah. was, and they weren't even the biggest ones by quite a bit. They right. were there were others for sure, but they sort of you know broke open the brains of uh, uh, yeah. of everybody, and and also like on the back of that you got the the new sort of uh, you know heroin you know franchising model, but yeah. then but but what's sort of disturbing about about what's going on now outside of people dying and outside of like you know the mental health issues that happen almost immediately on the streets, yeah, is one the lack of understanding and two that there's no end. That they're, yeah. they're, they're, that the supply that the idea at least you know something used to be seasonal at least you had to store something you know what I mean <laughs> right, right there's no seasons there's no seasons with synthetic drugs you can make them in the m- middle of winter just as easily as in the middle of summer and um, of course if you control the, the the supply of ingredient chemical ingredients you can make them in quantities that we're seeing we're seeing now this is only possible I think because it's Mexico doing it. China had to the chemical companies in China had to mail it through the through the mail. Yeah. Pounds at a time. Yeah. You could never cover the entire country with not one but two of these extraordinarily powerful drugs um with packs coming in from the mail. It yeah. just is not logistically feasible. They may have wanted to do that, but they just can't do it. 
With Mexico, it's a whole other thing. There's 2,000 miles of border, free yeah. trade. We don't have the capacity to check even. I, I don't know what the figure is, but it's a minuscule amount of the trucks coming over. Yeah. People think of, 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 of immigrants taking it over. The immigrant issue is a the complicated one. But the truth is the drugs come in trucks. Yeah. And, and you don't cover the entire country and drop the price by 80%. By packing stuff around people's waist yeah. and having them walk yeah, it across or, it or walk ass. it through the canyon yeah. or whatever. Yeah. That just doesn't happen. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just, it's it's a truck loads of, a t- yeah. of shit at a time. Yeah. And many, many of these all day long, all year long, constantly because yeah. you're making too much for, you know. Part of the story was, it was a remarkable thing. Um, I talked to this this gang member source I, I've had for a long time. He's been a wonderful guy. Really, really great. And um, he told me, I call him Timmy in the book. Um, uh, he told me that he at one point started to, he was using meth. He got, he was clean for a lot of years. His life was going great. And then some, like an idiot starts using again, begins to believe that he can be some major kingpin of trafficking meth, goes down to Mexicali, Mexicali. And there he hooks up. He says, the truth was you walk into any tire shop any auto shop, uh-huh. any mechanics, and they can put, those are kind of notorious for being vectors of drug trafficking, yeah. and certainly in Mexico, I think here too. Um, but you've got uh, um, um, just anybody you talk to can within 10 minutes can put you in touch with 20 pounds of meth. Yeah. And, but that's because the supplies, it was like store, there was just too much of the shit. Sure. They were making too much of it. Sure. And so pr- after a while, he doesn't do very well of it. He gets out of it, and long story. But but eventually, after what he's out of it, and they still keep calling him. Yeah. Because he's a white guy. Yeah. With a car registered in his own name. Yeah. And they've got they're calling him. Please come down to Mexicali. We'll fill your car. You can take my. Because the the supply. The point I'm making is the supplies. Sure. Were just staggering. Yeah, and also uh, it was it's interesting that you know in in uh, in Dreamland you know you really were focusing on Appalachia and and yeah. and and broken or, or dead industrial towns like the the Rust Belt and and, right. the, and all these uh, the great industrial cities. There's a lot of that in this book. But what happens in this book when he especially when you talk about meth, which was really a, specifically a, a white person's drug, yeah. is that eventually because of availability yes. and because of persistence that it entered the black community entered the yeah. mexican community it was just you know everywhere when the traffickers got into when the mexican travelers got into meth that's when it began to consume like the latino here you begin to see this in gangs latino gangs a lot really bad people and gangs certainly don't need to be more psychotic no they don't but they became so and i've, I've interviewed many guys who in the 90s that really took over um in early 2000s absolutely for sure however i could say that in 35 years as a reporter a lot of those covering crime and, and issues related to that i had never once not once seen a black person buy, use, sell, or even know what methamphetamine was. I mean, it, it just was, they were all about, the drug users in the African-American community were all about cocaine. That was their Crack drug, drug of choice. And, and, and so now, all of a sudden, comes this staggering supplies and relentless, not just one wave of it, but endless waves of and this And easy shit. to get. Yeah, it's so easy to get. And all of a sudden, you begin to see... Uh, the black community starts selling it, and that's why I wrote the story of Rashad Martin. That's a great story. Yeah, yeah uh, who who's now doing a lot of years for this, but became kind of the first black meth dealer in the Columbus, Ohio area, and very interesting fella. And and but I wanted to talk to him because I'm like, I've never seen this before. What right. happened? You know? Well, 
I got out of prison, couldn't find work. You know, pretty soon someone holds up a baggie of this. I think it's crack at first because yeah. it's white powder. And then he go, and they go, no, this this is meth. And I go, I don't know what the fuck meth is. I never. He had never really even heard of it, and pretty soon it and just- you, I think you could smoke it, couldn't you? Oh, yeah, yeah sure, yeah, 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 but he never did drugs. Right. Nor did he ever, he told me- I, I just I think about him. the shift to, from crack to meth. Well, it, it, it just, what ends up happening with him is he begins to turn all his drug dealing buddies, because he's been in prison, just right. got out of prison for, for, for being part of this major crack ring. Right. And he begins to turn all those guys on to it, and they begin to make more, as they said, as they, he, they told him, he said- I made more money in a in a month than I made like a year selling yeah. crack with, yeah. with by selling selling uh, methamphetamine. And he becomes like Mr. Kingpin. I but mean, also, huge. yeah. But you also you go to, to talk about how you know they 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 wanted to give back to the community. There was that sort of the, know, the benefit to methamphetamine, if you want to call it that, in the black community yeah. was that nobody did it at right. that time. Yeah, at that time. And so the money that was coming in wasn't being squandered on like crack the way crack would right. uh you do it on crack and so it was really about buying diapers buying uh-huh. formula for babies taking kids to the to the the water park that kind sure. of thing it was there there was no drug use of meth yeah up to that up to that point now i think that's changed but so now where are we at uh it's it's the meth is still there the crazy making meth and now yeah. the fentanyl is primarily uh it's in, everywhere in, no all of these are pills yes because the trafficking world down in mexico was making so much and they could see that the dealers up here were idiots didn't know how to mix it didn't know yeah. what to do and they began to say why don't we and they're killing people they didn't they didn't want that I'm well probably they don't i don't Care that think they care so much about killing people. They just want the headlines that go with the, the killing people, mm. you know. But also, they began to see a value-added play in a sense. If we sell it won't be kilos wasted. of fentanyl, yeah. boom, that's okay. That's something. But if we m- turn those kilos into two hundred thousand pills a piece or whatever it happens, yeah. I can't even remember what the what the what the breakdown would be. And we could sell those pills, each of them for, you know, yeah. that's a big, so that's what begins to happen. 2017 is when you first begin to see those pills being produced, counterfeit, attempts to make counterfeit pharmaceutical pills. Right. And they do pretty well. And then they keep doing it. Now they've, I mean, Xanax, fake Xanax, fake Percocet, fake Tylenol, even fake illegal drugs like ecstasy and stuff like that because the supplies of fentanyl down there are so huge they have to look for new so products for so which it, to administer them so it's interesting so so that's really it it's it, it's it, obviously it's demo- insidious uh, across the board but the reason fentanyl is in everything is because there's so much fentanyl yes it's not possible. If they had limited fentanyl, it was more expensive. They would not, not be just sprinkling because it like I, well, salt on food. Right, because I couldn't quite figure out, like, why are these people buying blow with fentanyl in it? Like, what is to be gained from the dealer in doing that? You because you, making... get a, you get a fentanyl addict in, a, in exchange for a, a, an occasional cust- cocaine customer. Yeah. Buying from you like once, twice a so week. So it's the same. It's the old first time is always free thing. It's it's the same. It, something like that. And then after you after you've you've been you've survived your fentanyl exposure. Now yeah. you're gradually getting addicted. Now it's every day. And that's the the, the thing about fentanyl. It's a magnificent um, anesthetic because it takes you in and out of anesthesia very quickly. But that's what makes it a torment 
for users because you have to be using several times a day, fentanyl several times a day, because it doesn't last long. It doesn't keep the withdrawal sickness at bay yeah. for more than a few hours. You're never in peace on fentanyl. That's why this is, as I said in the book, this is all about supply creating demand. Nobody's, de- even the, the most hardened heroin addict would never want fentanyl instead of heroin. Fentanyl, you have to shoot up several times, use in what form, whatever form, several times a day. With heroin, it's, you know, you can get away, most people can get away for two, maybe three times a day. Um, if they're but, strung out. It, yeah, but but it, it's it's always, you never get that peace and away from the from the from the uh, the withdrawals for very long so, it's always right there well, because so, of the nature of the drug so that's sort of the the guts of uh, of of the problem is that is that, that that compulsion is so hungry and so dangerous and it and it and, and they understand they began to understand that in mexico that this was also the most addicting sure and the most um you know the, the withdrawals as it turns out are, are the worst so between all. that that compulsion, that need for the fentanyl, and then the 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 sort of surrendering to a complete detachment from reality yes. with the meth. Right. I mean that that problem and the death from you know, it. It's like it seems insurmountable. You know, I I I know that at at times it has felt that way to me. First of all, I think I think one of the things we need to recognize. Uh, and we, we are reluctant sometimes in this country to talk about the culpability of other countries. Um, uh, but I do believe that this, this th- there is nothing normal about what's happening right now. This is all because um, uh, Mexico has really done nothing to staunch this problem, to pay yeah, attention to Yeah, because you're clear problem. in the book that, like, you know, if you take it away, people have if, to if, adapt. If you, if, and also, if you... The, the the traffickers have really painted themselves into a corner. As as much as they're making now, and as powerful as they seem, they still now are reliant for these massive profits. They are still now reliant on about I would say ten to fifteen shipping ports. First of all, the ports on the Pacific coast, um, and which where well, there are several, but there's two principal ones about yeah. two two hour two days drive south of Arizona. And then um, also some of the airports. So really, they are allowing you, they're saying, if you want to, you could shut this entire thing down very easily. You don't have a huge manpower looking for fields of, of, of poppies all over northern Mexico, which yeah. is just so vast. Yeah. You just have to focus on these areas. But because they haven't, you see these bizarre results. So in Culiacan, Sinaloa. Culiacan is the is the capital city of the state of Sinaloa, and it's quite an amazing town. It's been there many times. It's a, it's a it's a weird place. It's an agricultural hub. Sinaloa is really one of the main agricultural producers. So tomatoes, let, uh, lettuce, um, you know, cucumber stuff like that. Now, what you have in Culiacan is you have dozens, maybe hundreds, of chemical brokers in Culiacan. There's no reason, there's not an industrial, it's not an industrial town. There's no reason to have, a legitimate reason to have all these these chemical brokers dealing with foreign chemical shipments. Right. They're there because of the meth and the fentanyl, you know, and then the fentanyl is also coming in through the airports, Uh uh, various ones. But what what, what that means is that it would not be that hard with a sustained collaborative binational approach to this it would not be that hard to really drop that that supply down and to me the supply is the story this is what i've come to understand i used to think before i'd really started studying this stuff that well this is all about demand look the opioid epidemic starts because 
pharmaceutical companies and convince doctors to prescribe this these pills like they're going out of style and pretty soon you have an unprecedented amount of opioids nationwide yeah supply right pro- pro- provided by the drug companies and the then then doctors convinced to do this but the same thing is true now you you see you know the drug supply has just shifted it's just now out of Culiacan, it's out of uh, various times, uh, Nayarit, Michoacan, places like that, and you have all all this stuff. But it's still a, you know, a supply story, sure. and it's supply creating demand. And so I would say, in one of the major ways that kind of the you're asking earlier, this aha moment or something, this revelation is that when I began to understand that this was not about demand. Yeah. They're not really about demand. Now, there's issues connected to our own isolation, connected to our own trauma, connected to our own massive marketing of other legally illegal uh, and, 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 and the pathways that have been put in place by yeah. creating needs of all kinds. Precisely. You've got, and you've got all this stuff that makes us maybe a, a especially vulnerable. I think isolation, community isolation is uh-huh. really a big one. Yeah. And um, that makes us especially vulnerable as a culture. But to me, it's really still about the supply and and i would say that there's actually you know a lot that can be done that's why i focused on the book most we've been talking about meth and fentanyl but most of the book is really about these stories of these people who are doing in smallest smallest unnoticed unsexy ways trying to help a community stick together or or you know, rebound or help. Yeah, one they're, person. All, they're all great stories. You yeah, know, all yeah. of this stuff is yeah. to me that was to me the heart and soul uh, of 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 the book because it got to where I think as a culture and as a country we need to we need to go. You, we need to be about finding those ways of of moving um, uh, of moving away from the idea first of all that we can all be all alone and in our houses and on our screens and also. Uh, we need to move away that, from the idea that there is this one big magic bullet answer to all our problems, like with pain pills for all American pain, that kind of stuff. And th- that stuff is so damaging. And so I wanted to tell stories of people whose who's le- the lesson of their stories is really people are showing up daily. They're just doing it. They're not waiting to be to be applauded, nor do they think they're saving the world in some noble, virtuous yeah. sense. You know what right. I mean? All of this is really kind of part of where I think my best take, I guess you might say, is where do we go from? This is where we go. And I wanted to tell stories of those people that nobody knew. Right. And, and they all have you know unique experiences, some of them criminal, mostly addicted, yeah. Yeah, that, have, that have kind of come through the other side yeah. and, and focus on different methods of service. Like in, in Dreamland, you talk about the new drug courts. You, yes. know, you talk about that here, too. Yeah. But you also talk about, uh, you know, community stepping up. But I, I think that the interesting thing is like because I'm hearing people, I'm hearing comics, you know, just blatantly and shamelessly, you know, make fun of the type of homelessness that's happening now because there is, yeah. you know, something zombie-like and weird but you know they yeah. don't know what that is they, they or they could just say it's like drugs or whatever or mental illness yeah. but it, it bothers me it, yes, always me uh me to the sense in the sense that like you know I, but you know talking to you what, what i tap into is that is that there there 
that no one can no one wants to apply the sensitivity that empathy requires anymore yeah. they they just sort of like it ain't me it's not my problem and yeah. and then on the other side of that when you talk about these addicts who who have committed sometimes consciously to 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 living in a in a alternative reality yes because the real one is too difficult that they're also doubling down and yes, that there is right. no bottom anymore. So there's no, the idea of well, recovery. Well, bottom is death. That's right. I, I thought that was a good observation in the book that used to be like, you know, that people in those lives would get to a point where they've had enough because, yeah. you know, they remember what real life is. But, but that doesn't exist anymore. And what you find now in a lot of the encampments, as I said, is that people are freezing to death. Right. Rather, the, than, that, rather than being, when they're offered housing, warming shelter, something, they're free, or they're getting frostbite. Because why? Because they will not leave the dope. Now they, they like, like to pre- present it as well. I don't want to leave my friends and the, the the community that I have. And I'm like, yeah. But these are people who are going to rip you off. You know, they're going to rip you oh, off. Oh yeah, and the way you talk about the you know the the, the prostitution and the pimping yeah. and the dependency that happens in fucking tents. Like you know, what kind of you know person is going to get a blowjob in a fucking homeless tent? Yeah, but. Look, figure it out. It's, I mean, I think it, I think this is the um, this. I've been spending a lot of time uh, on Skid Row lately, and uh, of course, Skid Row is where all of this starts. That's the amazing thing. That's the amazing understanding of that. I probably would have put in a book had I known better uh, about Skid Row. But this this form of homelessness. You remember? I don't know. You probably remember in the eighties and nineties, early two thousands. A homeless guy was with a shopping cart and a box. Yes, right, exactly. And then there were these court cases that allowed first uh, the city of Los Angeles ended up fighting, but then settled all these court cases and creating what we have now on the streets, which is first they settled with a lawsuit saying you can't enforce. You can have laws on the book governing sitting, lying, and and sleeping on the street, but you can't enforce them between these hours. Right. And then it was, the next suit was, a few years later, was uh, now police can't seize personal property, like backpacks and small stuff. And then it became, and I think this was crucial, police can't seize bulky property. So chairs and and tables and beds and all this kind of stuff. And pretty soon, you know, this went all the way to the Ninth Circuit well, Court but, of Appeal but that, and everybody began to- But, but, but the idea this, was you know, it was progressive policy around a housing shortage or a housing crisis. The idea was that housing is the problem, is, right. is the, the cause of homelessness. Yes. And there may have been a time- when that might have been true. The problem is those policies are then superseded or surpassed or undermined, or whatever, by the, the drugs on the street change. And that's the story of this book. That right. Basically, it's, it's within the last eight to 10 years that we have seen first meth and then fentanyl just take over the entire country. And, and now you get to a point where people are not willing to leave the encampment. They're there because they know they that they don't have to. Right. They're not going to be moved. They're right. not going to be, you know, and cops are going to like, okay, I can't do anything. And um, and and so they stay with the dope. It's the dope, in my opinion, I have to say, I know there's this feeling like, well, these are their homes. This is community. My feeling is honestly that that every time you talk to a person, a person in a, in a, in a in middle of winter, would you like to get housed? No, no, no. No, I want to stay here. That is so clearly the dope talking, that there is no free will here. There's no rational choice. People are choosing to live in both filth and complete violence and exploitation and and risk death literally almost every single day. 
homelessness is extraordinarily complicated. I understand that. Sure, a I lot of right. people, wa- reason you could be, you know, molested, domestic violence, emancipated right. from foster care, get right. out of prison, you know, um, a rent hike, an eviction, a surgery, all these things can make you homeless. And so can drug addiction in a very, very important way. That's extreme. But the other thing that happens, though, is even once you're on the street, no matter the reason, it's also very true, I think, that these drugs, and I would say methamphetamine does an especially good job of this, uh, keeps you homeless. You know, you're, you're, you're so strung out, you're so lost, you're, still, you're, you're, you're talking gibberish that there's no chance of you being making any sense or making any rational decision. And at the same time, we don't have the power, you know, polit- po- police power to say, okay, we're going to take you, put you somewhere else for six months. Dry out. Yeah, it's, we, we have like three, three day, you know, well, yeah, mental and illness hold. And that's, that's about that's, it. But, and, and that's, that's all thinking. Enough. That needs to evolve. But well, the, uh, the idea that took hold at the same time as these policies yeah. and, 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 and then at the same time as the meth and then the fentanyl were spreading all across the country was... All that housing is the problem of homelessness and that all people need is a house, which I think has shown itself to be absolutely insane. You know, take a person off of the street. This is the idea. Put them in a house with services, with a case manager and all that kind of stuff. And and that person, no matter the, the state of mind of that person, that person uh, will be a better off and right, fine. What ends up happening is, of course, house. they can't handle it. They don't like it. They begin to tear the place apart. That's where we're finding in LA, I think a lot of landlords will not rent to Because they, those they kinds bring of, the street into the house. And they, they, and they, and they frequently just shred the house, you know, because yeah. they're not prepared. It's not an idea that you can just go from the street to a perfectly nice house and have the mental wherewithal to pr- and preparedness. And, and to, and to stop the drugs. you got to stop the drugs. And exactly. I, and, right. and that's, I mean, that's Precisely. the point of the last chapters of the book. And, yeah. and also the story. Yeah, I never knew about the backpackers. About, you know, that, there's that one story about how he was observing, you know, how somebody went with, they had their stuff that they left the house with. And then one suitcase went, and then the next suitcase went, and then just the backpack. But this backpack culture and this bicycle culture. Because the, because the, on the street, nobody's really your friend. There is no real I mean, there might be some, but 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 by and large, it's a dog eat dog thing. The crime that's committed on on in Skid Row is homeless against homeless. Yeah. And and as you say, that in that one story in Clarksburg, uh, West Virginia, small town. Yeah. Meth comes in, no homeless people. Yeah. And then meth comes in, and boom, it's all over. You know. Right. Well, that that was the one story of of a community coming together that I thought was great. And then you go yeah. back to the uh, original place of Dreamland. Yes. You know, that is shifting. And it, like in the way you describe it in the book with, with what's going on there in terms of creating outlets and service and, and, and places where people can dry out and yeah. get trained for jobs and then, you know, uh, recovering people, creating jobs. Yeah. You make it sound like it's big and it's really happening. Is it big I, and really I, happening? I, look, it's no, I, th- I don't think it's big, but I think that's the point. I think it's small. And to me, this is how we work our way out of this in the very local Small ways, community connections, certain personalities meeting up, mm. and from there finding some. You find a scene. You know, I was very big into the punk rock scene uh, back in the late seventies, yeah. early eighties, and what you found is lots and lots of people coming together, same interests, lots of clubs starting up, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You found these synergies of people, right? And I love. I think that is just such a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean that it's magically 
solved or it's going to take tomorrow well, yeah, next and, year and it I will be you, fine i think you characterize that well is that there are people that keep trying and they fall off and they come back i mean that's the nature of recovery in a lot of ways I, I, and i think it's absolutely that town is very much like a recovering addict it's yeah. like not just it. sitting around going oh what was us saying no i'm going to try and i'm going to fall and i'm going to keep going and I, and and it's going to take a lot of little people no big factories coming in with 500 jobs those are all being robot jobs anyway well, you know, yeah, it's like small yeah, and businesses, it's, it's, and it's getting state governments and, and local governments to 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 take the risk, allow right. it to happen, support it. You know, and then when you have radicalized, you know, sort of Christian government taking over, you really wonder, like, you know, what what a government system that would you, you know make abortion illegal? Are they just going to start shooting these guys? I don't. I no, I doubt it. I I, I think that these are. Um, here, here's the thing: when you get away from the social media headlines and you get down to the 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 the, the street level yeah. and the connectivity yeah. connection level in, in, in Portsmouth Ohio the town we're talking about uh-huh. right now um you began to see how it's all bullshit all that stuff's bullshit no this is about people just finding each other coming together having ideas one guy's idea sparks an idea and another person she says she has an idea her idea sparks you know it's that kind of synergy that begins to happen and also finding people spiritual uh, like a lot of it is yes sort of reliant on spiritual community uh, you know and and, and and church community and, and and that kind of missionary outreach and if that's why i called it's weird because i'm not a christian but that's why i called it the least of us you mm. know i began to read the bible i had read the bible but um, I, I began to read again the Bible, the, the Gospels in particular, and I came upon the Gospel of Matthew, yeah. where Jesus, understanding the profound truths, this guy, says, um, that what you do for the least of, of these, my brethren, you do for me. He understands that we, without each other, we are lost. Without that community thing, we have needed that to survive as a species since the caveman yeah. days. And he understands that. And so I began to play around with those ideas the least this this idea that that we're only as strong as the most vulnerable in our communities we're only we all of us have the brain chemistry to be that addict eating we all have the least of us within us yeah you know yeah and and so to me that became the way of conceiving of the book again the the book talks a lot about fentanyl and methamphetamine but to my mind the 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 real heart of it is is these ideas of americans We've been away from this idea for so long of coming together, finding community because, you know, it's tough. It's it's sloppy. It's messy. You don't like other people. You got to pay more more in taxes, maybe. Tolerance. That kind of shit. I'm sorry. You have to have tolerance and patience. Indeed, and you have to be willing to just kind of work through the hard, yeah. the, the bullshit with some people. And because let's face it, but we, that's there. But I mean, in the long run, I think that's where you find. The defense. That's where you find the bulwarks. That's where you find the communities moving forward. And I was, I went back to Portsmouth because at the end of Dreamland, I glimpsed some faintest little glimmer of recovery, and I wrote thirty pages on on it in the last book, in yeah. the Dreamland book. Yeah. And this time I go, okay, I want to see this in action. So I begin calling people there, and they say, well, you know what we're doing. Um, they were they were very they're saying telling me a lot of things. It was very interesting to to listen to. But then they said, you know. One of the things we're doing is we're setting up, it was right around Christmas, we're setting up a, um, a temporary uh, ice skating rink that people can then come together and skate. Yeah. And the truth is, this is an area that probably at one time lear- knew how to skate. Yeah. But the decline of the city, the decline of economics, the city used to spray water on this park and freeze in the winter and everyone would s- skate. 
But now nobody in South Skate anymore because those are that, that was the gov- uh, city government when they actually had jobs and yeah. lots of people and that kind of thing. So you're seeing all these people kind of flop around on the. But it's beautiful. Everyone's loving oh, it. The kids it, are they, loving they it. They made a rink. Yes, they put together an entire rink in a vacant lot, oh, yeah. and I went there and I was like. This is what I'm fucking talking about, man. This yeah. small stuff. Is it saving the world? Of course not. Yeah. Of course not. That's the <laughs> point, though. It's this small thing where you're showing people, hey, man, this is how you move forward on this stuff. And and it's don't expect a miracle. Don't expect that you're saving the world. Don't expect. Expect that you will have sublime human connections of the kind that you cannot find on Twitter. Right on. Well, great book. Thank great, you, Mark. Great really, once you. again, I appreciate your... Interest in my work, man. Yeah, so man. nice of you. Nice to see you. You too. Okay, take it in. It's heavy, but it's real. The Least of Us is available wherever you get books, and you can get it in paperback starting November 1st, and you can go listen to that earlier episode with Sam. If you uh, have never heard it before, it's amazing. It's available to all listeners in the free feed right now, episode 757. And if you could, just hang out for a second. Okay, if you haven't subscribed to WTF Plus yet, we've been doing exclusive bonus content every week for the full Marin subscribers. We've done episode reviews. I talked with my dad. We've played deleted material from recent episodes. I answered listener questions. And last week, we went through my entire filmography. You can check all of that out right now and check out the new stuff we put out every week by using the link in the episode description. Just go to episode description on whatever app you're using and click on the link to WTF Plus. You can also get that link at WTFPod.com. We're doing the extra stuff for you, people. Look, I'm at Largo in L.A., here in L.A. this Wednesday, August 10th. I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska at the Rococo Theater on August 18th. Des Moines, Iowa at the Hoyt Sherman Place on August 19th. And Iowa City, Iowa at the Inglert Theater on August 20th. I'm in Tucson, Arizona at the Rialto Theater on September 16th. Phoenix, Arizona at Stand Up Live on September 17th. Boulder, Colorado at the Boulder Theater on September 22nd. Fort Collins, Colorado at the Lincoln Center on September 23rd. And Toronto, Ontario, Canada at the Queen Elizabeth Theater on September 30th and October 1st. London and Dublin, I'll be coming to you in October. Go to WTFPod.com slash tour for all dates and ticket info. Okay, let's take it out.
lives. Monkey, the fonda, cat animals everywhere. Stay away from that fentanyl. Stay away from that meth. Stay sane. Use whatever options you have at your disposal to maintain your sanity without hurting yourself or others. Bye. 